But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right, Romans 3. Let's pray and get to work. Father, we uh, are in front of a really important text today. It seems like nearly every passage in this book is important, but this one is very, very important. It, it captures the beauty of the essence of what the gospel is all about. So today, would you help me to make it clear? And would you cause it to land on hearts that are ready to receive it? And I pray even now for individuals in this room or online who today you may be very well calling to cross a line between unbelief and belief. So Would you do a work that only you can do by your spirit? Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For as long as I can remember, I've been a morning person. I love the mornings. I'm happy when I wake up. I'm really, and not just because there's coffee. I'm I'm happy because it's a new day. Um, How many of you would consider yourself to be a morning person? Would you raise your hand? Okay, thank you. The rest of you, you're crossing your arms and going, (laughs) frankly, those are the people I don't like, right? In fact, you have a verse in the Bible for your belief. It's Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. So you know that. It's, It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Proverbs 27, 14. It's in there, I'm telling you. So if you're a a night person and not a morning person, you got a verse, okay? You're like, quiet. You're sinning. It's uh, Proverbs 7, 27, 14. I have very little use for the dark. I, I find it to be depressing. I think sunsets are beautiful, but I think they're sad. Like the day's over. And that's why I, I like sunrises. They're, they're, they, life's optimism and there's hope and there's a new day. I have never in all of my life pulled an all-nighter. Never. I'm an all-dayer. I'm not an all-nighter, right? So I, I like the day. And so... When I was reading Romans 3, 21 to 26, over and over this week, and forgive me for being just a little bit sappy, but it, it felt as though, I'm reading this text, like the sun is starting to come up. Like the radiant rays of grace are beginning to flood the land of dark depravity that we've been in for seven long weeks. And I, I love this dawning of God's grace last number of weeks we've been looking at the dark condition of humanity it's a sober treatment 
We've been looking at the way in which God has revealed his righteousness and revealed our unrighteousness. And now we turn for the next five weeks, then ending on Easter, to the gift of righteousness. So the first section was about the revealing of righteousness. Now we turn to the gift of righteousness, and we see what is really beautiful about God's grace. This text is arguably the central text for the book of Romans. So in your Bible or your electronic device, this passage probably needs to be highlighted or starred or something like right next to it, like central passage of Romans. For that matter, Martin Luther said it's the central text of the entire Bible. So like no pressure today, right, to get this passage right. Let me tell you what he does. And, and if you're here, by the way, and you don't know Christ today as your Savior or you're confused or you're just trying to, you're unconvinced, I'm going to show you today, I hope very clearly, very plainly, what the gospel is, why it's so beautiful, and how the gospel leads us to God. So what Paul does is he strings together a series of phrases, all of which relate to the matter of grace, and he he designs his writings to show us the beauty of God's grace in order then to show us the beauty of God. So his aim is not just to show us grace, it is to show us God. And that is the end game of the gospel. It is not just that we are saved from our sins, but it's that we are saved from our sins such that we can have fellowship with God. So you could summarize what I'm going to say today in this way, that the dawning of the beauty of God's grace leads us to the beauty of God himself. If you've understood this passage rightly, if I have divided it and explained it clearly, then there ought to be moments as I'm talking that your heart is just filled with love and worship. And oh, I hope that happens today for you at some level and in some way that you leave today, not just with a better understanding of the gospel, but with a even greater love in your heart for what God has done for you in Christ. So let's begin. The first, the beauty of grace Verse 21 contains a major shift that is highlighted with the words, but now. And that but now, it might as well be a chapter break because of how significant a turn is it. And the idea, or turn it is, the the idea is that everything Paul has said previously about the dark humanity of man is now turning. That's why the the word but is there. And but now, meaning redemption, is here now. It's, it's, It's not in the future. It's right now. Now. So Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's a word that we had seen earlier in chapter 1, how God has revealed or manifested his righteousness. So we see it again here. It's manifested apart from the law, meaning that the main thing that Paul's going to talk about here is the fact that this righteousness doesn't come to us by our works. In fact, the, the message of the Bible and the message of Romans is this, we're the problem. We're not the solution. We are so far from the solution. We are the problem. And everything we touch is compromised by our sinfulness. And so he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, and then says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. What Paul wants to be careful about here is not to give you an understanding or to have a misunderstanding, rather, that the Old Testament didn't talk about the gospel uh, or anticipate the gospel. So what, what Paul is saying is, is that there's a message new that is coming in Romans, but it's not new for the entire Bible. The Old Testament prophets testified that this was coming. Then what he does in verses 22 to 25 is puts together a string of phrases that describe the gospel. So he's going to come at it from a lot of different angles. 
And these, I've collected them into ten short little statements or phrases. And, and think of this like the number of different ways that you would tell someone close to you that you really love them. I mean, you don't just tell them once, right? I mean, please, husbands, don't be one of those guys who are like, I told my wife I loved her at our wedding day. If I change my mind, I'll tell her. You know, you know? <laughs> that's a great way to make your way to counseling right there. So don't, don't, don't have that mentality, right? Instead, you're going to tell your wife you love her many different ways and lots of different expressions. And in the same way, Paul is going to show us the gospel from a lot of different angles. And, and each one of these is glorious. You'll resonate with a couple of them, maybe more than others, but all of them are beautiful. So let's begin. Again, there's 10 of them. Here's the first one, through faith. It begins in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. That, that little phrase, through faith, is really important. In, in fact, this entire section essentially is about, as I said before, that works won't earn you righteousness. In other words, you can't save yourself. It comes through faith. In fact, this idea of through faith is so important that it's how Paul began the book of Romans. Chapter 1 and verse 17, he said, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So, the beauty of the gospel is the fact that righteousness comes not by works, but by faith. And this idea of faith is so important that it appears two other spots, even within our text. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There it is again. And then it's also in verse 26. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So faith, faith, faith. This, this faith thing is essential to a right understanding of what the gospel is. In fact, later on, we'll see the unpacking of this. But there is this idea that faith is essential to what the gospel is all about. What do we mean by faith? Faith means to believe. It means to put one's trust in, to rely upon, or to have confidence in something. And the rest of the list will help us to understand how, or by what means, or the scope of the righteousness of God coming to us by faith, or because of faith, or through the activity of faith. All of that to say, righteousness comes not by works, but it comes through faith. That's where it starts. Secondly, the text also tells us that it comes through faith in something. It comes through faith in Christ. And this little phrase, in Christ, is incredibly important, and Paul uses it throughout his letters for the identity of who we are. Because you can't just have faith. It has to be faith in something. This is important, because culturally, you know, religion is out, but spirituality is in. And so you might run into people who, oh yeah, I have faith. you got to ask the next question. Faith in what? Because it's not just that faith saves, but it's faith in something that saves. And namely, in Romans chapter 3, and according to the gospel, it is that faith in Christ saves. So faith has to have an object. In fact, you could think of the contrast between a An unconverted person and a converted person is this. An unconverted person puts faith in him or herself. You put your faith in you, that what you do or what you don't do in comparison to others, that it's all about you and what you do, and coming to faith in Christ means that you're done with you and you put your faith in Jesus. So the object of your faith is very, very 
important. It's eternally important. To put your faith in Christ means that you've turned away from looking to yourself, looking away from what you could do, and you turn to Jesus and you put your trust in what he could do. And the result of that means that everything about your life is shaped by what it means to be in Christ. When you stand before a holy God and you're a a wretched sinner, the only safety in that moment is the shield of being in Christ. It's in Christ. That's everything in Christ. So faith, through faith, in Christ Jesus. Number three, for all who believe. It says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the good news. As bad as the last treatment was that there was no one righteous, no, not even one, that we all have sinned, that we've all fallen short of God's glory... Paul then turns that and says, in the same way that we're all sinners, in the same way we all, all of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of our background, if you turn from yourself and turn to Christ, you can be gloriously converted and you can be converted today. It doesn't matter what you've done or what your past is like or how bad you've blown it or how many times you look back on your past and think, what was I thinking? You turn from you to Christ and anyone who believes... Anyone who believes, all who believe, can be saved. There is no distinction. All have sinned, and therefore, anyone who believes can be saved. Paul uses belief and faith interchangeably. Look at Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his... Excuse me. His faith is counted as righteousness. So believe and faith are used um, as synonyms for one another. And then also Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that if a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. You see? So those two things go hand in hand. Part of the beauty of what makes the church the church is the fact that we come from all different walks of life, but we have some things in common. I mean, we're really different from one another. I love the fact that we even have greater differences among us in terms of our ethnicities. Some of that stuff is really starting to change. We've got a long ways to go yet. But age differences, and old and young, and different backgrounds, different walks of life. And the beautiful thing is when you come together, there's a singular confession, and that is that I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, and we're saved by the same Savior. I mean, just even think of the diversity of what you experienced this morning musically. I mean, did you, did you, did you catch that? I mean, there's not a lot of places that you can experience what you experienced today, right? So we went from everything from, you know, I am free to run to... Sanctus Dei. I mean, some of you don't, you've never said words like that, right? I was loving that, right? You're singing Latin, right? Next thing you know, you'll be listening to chant music, chant rocks, you know, and you're gonna hear that. I love it. And then, you know, then the hymn folks, you're like, yes, hymns, right? You got the, so we got all of us together. It's beautiful, isn't it? So don't leave today going, we finally sang a hymn, or we rocked it out, or we crushed it with Sanctus Dei, whatever that name of that song was. So don't think of that. Just celebrate the fact I got to be in church today with people from all walks of life, all kinds of different tastes, and our common confession is, I'm a sinner, and Jesus saved me. All who believed. Number four, and are justified. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation, verse 25, by his blood, oops, sorry, I'm at the wrong verse, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are justified. One of the most important words in the Bible, this word justified. The word means to be made in a right relationship with someone else. And in this case, it is that we are made in a right relationship with God. It's a legal term. This is one of three kind of metaphors that Paul uses. Here he uses a legal metaphor. Next he'll use a slavery redemption metaphor. And then finally he'll use an expiation or a spiritual sacrifice metaphor. So the first one is this legal idea. And the Greek word for justified is closely connected to the word for righteousness. They even sound the same in the Greek. Justified in the Greek is dikaiumenoi. And righteousness in the Greek is dikaiusain. So they sound the same. And that means to be made righteous means, or to be, to be justified means that you have been made righteous. It means that God, through the work of Christ, declares people to be in a right relationship. It means that God takes what Jesus did on the cross and he applies it to your account. He counts Christ's death as your death. He takes your sin and he gives it to Jesus. He takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to you. And that mind-blowing reality is called a grace, amazing grace. It means that a holy, righteous God treats fundamentally flawed, unrighteous sinners as not guilty. We're justified by His grace as a gift. The beauty of justification is that we could never have earned it. This is the stunning Reality of the gospel. It means that God has given us His grace. It means that God provides it for us, which is why the reformers said that it's faith alone through Christ alone by grace alone. It's faith through Christ by grace. It means that it could never have been earned by you or purchased by you. And do you know why? Because you know, I know what I would do if I could purchase it, if I could earn it. It would become about me and the fact that I did it. And the beauty of the gospel is that God has given it to you. You could never have earned it. Which is why, and next week you'll see this, why the gospel obliterates boasting. It makes pride ridiculous. What are you going to say? That you did it? That you earned it? It would be as foolish as walking in the room and saying, Hey, check it out, my heart's beating. People be like, what? Yeah, it's beaten. Like, it's cool beaten. Check it out how I'm doing this. Be like, what are you nuts? And that's how the Bible says, what do you have that you haven't received? The answer is nothing. By his grace, as a gift, sixth, here's our next metaphor, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Paul uses the idea of a purchase for the purpose of redemption. And this harkens all the way back to Exodus and how God purchased his people out of slavery. The Greek word used here refers to the buying back of prisoners, the purchasing of slaves or condemned criminals by payment through a ransom. But here's the stunning thing. The ransom, you know what that was? The ransom was Christ. So his wounds have paid my ransom. So it's not just that Jesus paid my debt. It's that Jesus paid my debt 
personally. One of my favorite texts in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. If God didn't write it, I wouldn't have said it this way. It almost seems scandalous. So scandalous, it fits with the gospel. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse can change your life. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. I got everything I didn't deserve. He got everything he didn't deserve. All so that I could become something I wouldn't be without him making me, which is righteous. It's unbelievable. Seventh, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Here's the third metaphor. We had legal and then slave and now Religious or spiritual cleansing, propitiation. I'm sure it's not a word that you're all that familiar with in terms of using it every day. I'm sure you don't. No one got in the car today and as your kids were arguing in the back said, son, would you please move over so your sister could be propitiated? I mean, nobody said that today, right? It would have fit. You could sound really theological. Like, ooh, dad, word of the day or something, you know what I mean? So, but it means appeased. So her wrath will settle or stop. In the case of God, it means the restoration of relationship between God and human beings through atonement. It means the appeasing of God's wrath. But what's amazing about this text is the fact that it says, whom God put forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So it doesn't just mean that God was propitiated, but it means that God put forward a propitiation. Best quote I've ever seen on this, I've used it before, but I need to use it again, is by D.A. Carson in his book, Scandalous. He says this, In Christian propitiation, God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitiation to make himself propitious. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. God is the one who provides the sacrifice precisely as a way of turning aside his own wrath. God the Father is thus the propitiator and the propitiated, and the Son of God is the propitiation. And what are you? Grateful. (laughs) Oh, so grateful. Number eight. Remember all these angles. By his blood... The propitiation that God puts forward is nothing less than the physical death of his own son. And so that phrase, by his blood, connects two very important realities in terms of God's plan for redemption. In the first place, it connects the sacrifice of Christ to the Old Testament sacrificial system, that he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He became that ultimate sacrifice. So it connects him into the Old Testament sacrificial system. And on the other hand, it connects him personally, that the sacrifice didn't just satisfy the demands of the law, but his sacrifice was incredibly personal. He became the sacrifice. He just didn't offer a sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. Which is why if, if you're trying to figure out the claims of the gospel today, you understand that, that, that Jesus died. He became the sacrifice, the penalty, the payment for sins. He became the penalty for your sins. He took your place. He died in your stead. That's the point. Hebrews 9 says, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal salvation. So the death of Jesus appeased the wrath of God. He, think of it this way, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for you. Ninth, to be received. And we're coming to the end of the list, and Paul is turning the corner back towards the idea of faith. And the idea is, again, not on works, not on works, not on works. In order for grace to be beautiful, it needs to be something that depends solely on God. Therefore, Paul uses the word receive. So again, if you're not a convert, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, it is as simple and yet as life-changing as receiving the death of Jesus for yourself, of simply saying, I turn from my sin and I turn to you and I receive you, Jesus, today. I receive you as my Savior, a gift that you have received You receive it because it is what God gives. And then finally, we end again on faith. Number 10, by faith. This is where we started and Paul ends here. He starts with faith, he ends with faith. Why? Because the thing that Paul wants us to see is that righteousness does not depend on our works. Faith is the antithesis of works. So the beauty of the gospel and the essence of the good news is that forgiveness and eternal life and change right now comes to those who put their faith in Jesus, who trust in Christ's righteousness, who receive God's cleansing by faith. It is a righteousness through faith that appeases the wrath of God and it's something that is a gift. So, Ten different angles. What's going on in your heart? The beauty of God's grace, to review, is that it is through faith in Christ for all who believe, who are justified by His grace as a gift, through redemption, as a propitiation, by His blood, to be received by faith. That is our confession. That's my story. That's my song. That is everything that I live for and everything that makes all the difference in the world when you stand before a righteous God as a sinner. Without this truth, without this reality, you will be damned. And you will deserve it. And yet the scriptures call us to faith in Christ. To receive the beautiful gift, this cleansing of receiving Christ. And receiving it means that you understand the scope of what, it, what amazing grace is really all about. So ten different angles. I, I hope that your heart is not just filled with awe about grace, but that it also is filled with awe about God. In fact, I want to do something different. In the middle of the sermon, we're going to sing. Because you should be worshiping, right? Sing with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i am found was blind but now i see sickness my chains are gone 
I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Amen. Some of you need to be reminded today, that's what you live for. That's what you sing about. That's why you're here. It helps put in context suffering and hardship. It puts in context uh, dark moments in the last week. It it puts in context failures of the past. It it reminds us of the beauty of God's grace. And this, this, this grace in Romans is beginning to dawn and flood the dark valley of our cold and wicked depravity. But it's not meant just to stop there it's also meant to lead us to the beauty of god again grace isn't grace just to be grace grace is grace to lead us to god that's the point the beauty of heaven will not be grace grace is part of the beauty but the beauty is god we see this in verses 26 or rather 25 and 26 the second part of 25 notice this was to show god's righteousness again God's righteousness. Here it is again. This was to show God's righteousness. In verse 26, it says it was to show his righteousness. So you get the point. God is trying to show us his righteousness. He showed us his righteousness in chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, all the way to chapter 3 in verse 20 by showing us our unrighteousness. And now he's going to show us his righteousness. And what does he say? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Meaning that God didn't immediately deal with sin like he did with Adam and Eve. That he passed over those sins. He didn't bring immediate punishment on them. And this is owing to his divine forbearance. It's owing to God's patience. And the reason he says that is because as human beings, we can mistakenly think that fair and normal are the same things. Because you can start to think that because we do wrong things and nothing happens, we do wrong things and nothing happens, we do wrong things and nothing happens, that it must be that it's not a big deal. And Paul says, no. No, the righteousness of God will be dealt with. The fact that he passed over these sins is not owing to the fact that unrighteousness isn't a big deal. He passed over them because he's patient. That's why. And then the cross comes where he pays the penalty for sin. And on a personal level, think of this. Think of how patient God has been with us. How patient he's been with you, even leading you to this point of where you're even in this room today. All of the things that that God had passed over, so to speak, and drawing you to himself or even bringing you here. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, just think of all the things in your lifetime that God hasn't immediately judged you for. And yet you're here today. And it's grace. It's not converting grace, but it's grace. His divine forbearance. And then verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
This text helps us understand how God can forgive sinful human beings. See, the question is, how could a righteous God forgive sins? Does it? Does He just say, I'm sure you didn't mean to, let's just act as though that didn't happen, or let's just wipe that away? God cannot do that because of His righteousness, any more than a judge in Marion County would be allowed to commute a sentence of a murderer after he's been convicted and say, well, I'm sure you won't do it again. And to show mercy, I'm just going to let you go. The, the city would rise up in an uproar and have him disbarred, and rightly so, because the demands of justice have to be met. And in God's courtroom, it's the exact same thing. God doesn't just wipe away sins. He pays for them through the death of his son. That's the point. How can he be both just and justifier? How can God both be holy and righteous and forgive sins? The answer is the cross. It is that grace to us was free, but it wasn't free to Christ. No, I hope you get an adult mindset when it comes to the costliness of things. You know that there's nothing free in life, right? I mean, somebody paid for it to be free. It's free to you, but it's not free. I remind my kids that, you know, they used to be, you know, they got real big in the last three or four years. And so when they start wrestling in the house, like things break, holes in drywall and things of that sort. And eventually I had to sit down with them and say, look, see those holes in the drywall from you wrestling in the basement? See, every time that happens, that costs me money. Right? I gotta pay to fix that. So your fun is costly to me. You put, you think it's, you know, you, you, you put a dent in that wall. That, that costs me something. I gotta pay for that. Now you're paying for it. No, I didn't say that. So, this, this costs me. There's nothing that's free. That, that thing has to be, you know, fixed and someone's gotta pay for that. So it may be free to you, but it's not totally free. Somebody paid that. So when you get something free from somebody, somebody else paid for that. In the same way, the gift of grace that was free to you, wasn't free. It was free to you. But it was paid for by Jesus. And that's why the cross is so significant, so enormously important. It is that at the cross, we have the merging of God's righteous demands and His righteous forgiveness. We have the intersection of judgment and mercy. We have the intersection of law and grace, we have the intersection of wrath and kindness. The cross means that God can be kind and still be holy. That's why the cross is everything. This is the beauty of grace because it leads us to behold the beauty of God. So, As the dawn comes up in Romans and the sun of God's grace shines, what does that mean? How do we live? Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I've just, I've tried to explain to you as best as I can how unbelievably wonderful God's grace is. But there comes a point when you have to decide, are you going to stay in the position that you're in, trying to do life on your own, in your own strength, trying to either self-atone or measure yourself up against other people or deal with your own addictions by yourself or try and change your heart? Or would you come and, oh, I pray that you'd come to a point where you're just like, I'm, I'm, done, with, I'm done with me. My sin is so bad that everything I do, I mess up. 
and the guilt and the emptiness that you feel, God put that there in order to awaken you to the fact that you can't do it on your own. And I would invite you, compel you, plead with you today. You need to come to Christ and say, in effect, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I receive Christ. I need my life to be different. And I receive you, Jesus. I believe in what you did. And I'm done believing in me. That is how a person is born again. If you're a follower of Jesus... If you have tasted and received this beautiful thing called God's grace, then you ought to leave today with this sense of worship in your soul. To realize that grace is not an end run or the end goal. That grace is meant to lead you to God. And my question would just be this. So if you've received grace, then how's that relationship with God going how is it that your, how is your walk with Christ today? Does it fit with the beauty of the life-changing reality of this gospel? If the gospel takes root in us and we understand the beauty of God's grace, then we embrace humility and not pride. Why? Because of the gospel. We embrace forgiveness and not bitterness. How's that going? We embrace purity and not immorality. Why? Because Christ died for immorality, that's why. We embrace truthfulness, not deception. Compassion, not sinful judgment. We embrace patience and not irritation. Why? Because God has been so patient with me. You see, understanding the beauty of God's grace leads to fruitfulness in ways that are just stunning and compelling. It means that you've come to terms with the fact that my chains are gone. I've been set free. God has ransomed me and like a flood, His mercy reigns because it's unending love. It is amazing. Grace. Father, we, we ask that you would awaken us today to the reality of how this passage should be applied in our lives. So much grace that we've been given. And Lord, I can imagine in this room there are, there are people who, while I talk about grace, they, they've never tasted it. And I pray that today would be a day when they move from death to life. That they stop trusting in themselves and instead choose to trust you. And would you just by your spirit even right now awaken their hearts. Father, would they today reach out to you and say, Christ Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need you as my Savior. In fact, while we just end this service in a time of quiet meditation, I wonder if that's you, a person today who needs to receive Christ. You may have come today, somebody invited you to come along. I'm so glad you're here. And if you have questions, the person who brought you, you ought to ask them, tell me the story of how you came to faith in Christ. That person would love to tell you that story. And my hope is that their story would be your story. 
Afterwards, there'll be some people up here. If you want to pray to receive Christ today, we're here. They're here. There's nothing stopping you. All who believe can come to faith in Christ today. If you're a follower of Jesus, as we just wrap up, can you just take a moment and think, God, how is my grace walk really going? Humility, forgiveness, purity, truthfulness, compassion, patience. Just take a moment and just talk to the Lord about the implications of grace in your life. Thank you, Lord, that your mercy is a flood that rains. And would you make that so? Make it like a flood for people today who need to come to faith in Christ. Make it like a flood for people who've received it and now need to pour it out on family members and friends and relationships around them. Thank you, God, that my chains are gone set free. Thank you for the dawn of grace and the beauty of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, at the end, there'll be some people up here who'd love to pray with you if you have some spiritual need going on in your life. Please come and pray with them. They're here to serve you today, okay? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.